Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Kinetic Vet. Kinetic Vet is dedicated to creating scientifically guided, simple solutions to complex problems, taking the animal's whole health into consideration. Since establishing Kinetic Vet in 1999, founders and practicing veterinarians Scott and Stuart Pierce continually strive to develop products that are well-researched, clinically tested, and offer good value. Kinetic Vet introduced Conger, the first orally administered equine hyaluronic acid. They since have expanded their equine product line in the areas of joint health performance, hoof care, weight management, and skin and coat health. More recently, Kinetic Vet has developed products for livestock, companion animals, and humans. Driven by consumer needs, Kinetic Vet prides itself on being a transparent, science-first company. All products are tested for potency and purity in independent laboratories prior to being released for sale. You can be sure what's printed on the label is what is put into the bottle. For more information, visit KineticVet.com or visit them on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube. Thank you, Kinetic Vet, for your sponsorship of our 2022 convention, and thank you for your support of our CAF USA. There's so many things going on in our industry and organization, and so we think it's important to do a temperature check. So we checked in with Brett Kinsey, Eric Nelson, and Bill Bowler to talk about RCAP USA's 2023 Farm Bill platform and the progression of the strategies outlined in the 2023 Cattle Industry Long Range Plan. Well, we are live on this Monday evening, and I hope everybody has had a great start to their week. Um, I wanted to welcome everyone to this Facebook Live, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, We wanted to host this live just kind of to check in and do a temperature check on everything going on, and we have our 2023 Farm Bill platform and kind of just a progress check on the cattle industry long-range plan that we developed a few years ago. So without further ado, I want to introduce everyone we have on here. My name is Jaden Moreland, and I'm the marketing director with RCAF USA. And then we have our moderator, field director Karina Jones. And then we have CEO Bill Bullard. And from South Dakota, our president and region three director, Brett Kinsey. And from Iowa, our vice president and marketing committee chair and region seven director, Eric Nelson. Anyways, I think Karina, the stage is yours. All right. Well, let's open up tonight by talking about taking that temperature of the cattle industry. Right now, we know from coast to coast that um, our regions, you know, in the U.S. are still being heavily affected by Mother Nature. We've got some market um, excitement going on. And so let's pull this all together into kind of one ball of wax. So, Brett, we'll start with you. Give us your perspective of the cattle markets and the cattle industry from where you sit in South Dakota. Thanks, Karina. Uh, I guess, you know, to start, we've had a ton of snow this winter, just an absolute ton. I'm 51. It's the most I can remember. But now here we are. The snow is gone and it feels pretty dry. But uh, that being said, everybody's enjoying these high cattle markets. I mean, we've all got some holes to fill from the years gone by. Um, I would just say it's too bad that it feels like it's a market of attrition. You know, we, we really haven't fundamentally changed anything in the market structure of the cattle industry 
other than the fact that we've we've lost a lot of our contemporaries. I don't think anybody that ranches doesn't know someone who has has dispersed. Uh, you know, the academics want to blame it all on drought, but here we are, 62-year low or lowest cow herd since 1962. They they want to blame it all on drought, but you know, really, as drought is related to climate business climate, I believe has played a big toll in these herd reductions too. Um, so, you know, I guess that I just think that a lot of people were wobbly on their feet. They would have stuck it out if we had a competitive marketplace that returned us a competitive share of that beef dollar. I think there would be a lot more of us left. I guess the last thing I want to say is a while back, I was listening to a national ag talk show and I heard the, the beef industry group had a representative on there talking about uh, the appetite for market reform has passed. You know, we're, we're back to normal now. And uh, they talked about how they continue to educate legislators. But I guess I, for me at least, and, and for RCAF, the, the appetite for market reform and transparency and America first and putting the US back in USDA has not passed. Uh, the, the things that we're gonna discuss tonight are the right things for producers and they're the right thing for consumers. They're not gonna end anybody's business model if we put into place these reforms that we seek. And uh, I guess even though markets are good now, I would just say there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And that's what I challenge people. Don't get complacent. Let's uh, let's make sure these people that are paying great prices for feeder cattle, I guess they're great, even though our inputs are all. I mean, there's record record prices for everything, right? Inputs and cattle. But but let's do what we need to do to try to ensure that they get a competitive piece of that consumer dollar as those cattle are finished. Thanks. Eric, do you want to share your thoughts from Iowa? Sure. Um, you know, Brett and I actually aren't that far apart uh, geographically, but it's a fair bit different over here. But um, we're in the middle of calving season uh, this direction as well. Um, but while that's going on, it's kind of sad. Um, there's several pretty good sized pasture farms that are being torn up um, ongoing. The last week, dozers are out, excavators are out, clearing clearing land to farm more land and it's going to continue to put pressure on uh, on just how many cow numbers we can have here but everybody's you know is, is pretty optimistic with the the way these little calves and, and lightweight grass cattle have have dollared up here through the spring um and and of course the slaughter cattle prices have have certainly come up and and but but there's there's a, a fair amount of nervousness there on on guys that are that would normally be putting cattle back in. Um, and, you know, to me, you know, yeah, we've got record prices now, um, but it's a seasonal uh, right now. I don't think that, that we're anywhere close to where we should be to have record prices seasonally. This is typically when the, the high of the year would come in is, is almost just right where we're at. And, uh, and that also, um, happens when the, the seasonal high for the cash negotiated trade, the highest percent of, of uh, cash negotiated trade 
generally comes in about right now. And in our part of the world last week, we traded almost 87% of all the cattle we traded were cash negotiated. Uh, Nebraska was at 50, almost 51%. And Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico was only 8.9%. And so somehow we've managed to push this market higher, um, only selling 36,000 uh, cattle last week but we did it by trading almost, you know, getting close to 90% cash negotiated. And so um, I think that, that uh, we've got a ways to go yet to, to get to where it, it really feels like record prices. I mean, it, it, it shows that, right. But uh, I know um, eight years ago we had uh, the choice box was around um, 250. And so if, if we were still holding on to the same amount, um, we would have fats at around 205 today. Um, and obviously we're not, we're not there. The choice box today closed at 307.12 on 70 loads. Um, and so that, you know, we're getting back up into, you know, fairly lofty numbers on the box, which is great. All right. That's, that, that leads the way, but um, we're still not, you know, we've got work to do because we're not grabbing enough of that dollar that the consumer's um, spending. So there's, there's optimism and where there's real optimism in our part of the world is guys that still have a feed pile. And it's been so dry in Western Iowa the last two years. There's just, there's a lot of guys that are seeing the bottom of their feed supply. And th that's really making the decision on how aggressive they're going to put um, cattle back in. And so there's, there's some replacements that are coming back, but boy, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a little while yet before a lot of them are going to have enough feed to to stick their neck out uh, that far. So these high, high price feeders, a lot of them, and there's some of them that are coming this direction, but I think they're going to some, some areas that were a little greener last year. You know, I'm a couple hundred miles south of Brett. And so I just want to speak for more of the central plains region. And I would call the morale out here in central Nebraska, that mother nature is trumping the markets because unless we get some moisture to replenish some grass, to get some feedback in the feed yard in our stack yards, um, I, there's going to be a lot more cattle go to town before fall. That um, you know producers aren't going to be able to capitalize on on calf prices this fall because we just don't have enough feed to get us through. So we know that that is a, still a serious concern for the drought areas, and um, you know we're not out of the woods yet. So um, anything else you guys want to add about your perspectives on the cattle industry or the markets, the temperature, what you're hearing from around the country? Well, you know, the only thing that, that gets talked about pretty regularly anymore is, you know, the, the, the feeders have been really strong and, and, and there's a lot of feeder trading going on. And, and, and there's been some speculation on the Catalan feed report last week on Friday, the, the marketing numbers, the on-feed numbers were all kind of where everybody expected, but the placement numbers were higher. And there's some speculation that some of these feeders are just going round and round um, from lightweight to middleweight and then being traded back again as feeders. And so there's, there's a, you know, and, and I, it looked like today that the, the futures market kind of reacted that way. They kind of yawned through what everybody thought Friday afternoon was going to be a two-day limit down uh, slaughter cattle uh, market, and the the everything held up pretty well. So, um, I, I I think that the the numbers are short, um, 
and the cattle are kind of getting passed around from where there's feed to, you know, from where there's not feed, then on to where there is some. And maybe some guys had intended to, to finish them. And I think some cattle got turned as, as, as feeders and that's maybe, you know, rearranging some numbers and everybody's going to kind of have to digest those. Well, moving on, um, let's remind everybody that at the end of 2021, our RCAF USA Board of Directors worked to respond to what the beef checkoff put out called the Beef Industry Long Range Plan. It did not set well with a lot of our members It was as it was geared towards leveraging more control over cattle producers. Our RCAF board and staff got to work compiling an industry framework that served cattle producers rather than dictating to them. The cattle industry long range plan was released in late 2021, and we're here tonight to give you an update on the progress that has been made to create reforms that serve the cattle industry. While there's been a number of reforms, we're only going to take time tonight to touch on some of them, but Jaden is going to link the complete list of the progress that we've made in the comment section of this video so that everybody can open those up if they want. Eric Nelson, can you please give us a rundown on the attention that the cattle markets have received <clears throat> from academia in the last couple of years? You bet. It, it's it's kind of surreal. I'm looking here ahead of my desk, and I've got um, these four studies printed out, and there's there's 116 pages, printed pages. Um, you know, starting out with the buyer power in the beef packing industry um, from uh, you know Georgetown University. Um, moving on to Iowa State's multi-plant coordination in the U.S. beef packing industry um, study, and then moving on to uh, Dr. Robert Taylor uh, with the American Antitrust Institute and, and Auburn University doing his harvested cattle slaughtered, slaughtered markets study, and then um, noted law professor Peter Carstensen from University of Wisconsin um, uh, with, with his study. Um, and, and, and it's, it's tremendous and each one kind of brings its own, um, it's, its own power really to what we've, we've had missing because for years our opponents um, and, and the, the other side of this industry, the meat side of the industry was hiring um, academics to, to do studies for them. And, um, and we needed to, um, you know, we needed to have some uh, refutation to some of that uh, uh, their studies, and and we sure got it now. And um, uh, I know Bill Bullard and I had the pleasure to to meet with the, the the two principals that pulled together the Iowa State multi plant coordination study, um, and that really the impetus of that study goes back to when the when Tyson closed their their uh, first slaughter plant that was the IBP plant at Denison and. In, in 2015, and it's really been since then that that these beef packers have quit um, kind of looking at the at their business uh, as plant by plant, but really rather just as one buying center. And um, and and a, a lot of competition has gone away because of that. And consequently, today there's cattle being moved around um, from areas where they've got too many cattle. And, and they're coordinating those plants. And, and, and of course, the, a lot of folks in the meat side of the industry want to call it just efficiency, but I don't believe, and RCAF doesn't believe that, that those folks get to decide um, what's efficient um, for everybody. They, they can make statements about what they like, 
but it, I don't think that, that that doesn't necessarily give them the power to decide for everybody else. So um, it, it's uh, it's been tremendous that, that we've got these studies, Karina, and um, I would encourage everybody to take some time. Um, hopefully we get some rainy days where some folks can, can dig into some of these studies because they're really illustrative. They really are. Yeah, and we can help folks do that. We um, interviewed Nathan Miller, and that um, that podcast is on our YouTube channel as well as all of our podcast plat- platforms. And then he also came and spoke at our convention, and so um, folks can can watch that speech there. And we hope to be getting some of these other researchers and economists on our podcast plas- on our podcast platform this year. So we'll um, try to help folks find that information. Those studies are also can be found on the RCAF USA website as well. Brett, I know that one action that happened since we've come in, since we've came out with the cattle industry long range plan that you were very passionate about was when the 16 attorney generals wrote a comprehensive letter to the Secretary of Ag calling for stronger enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Um, tell us about that that you know effort by the state attorney generals to bring that to the federal attention. Sure, if I could jump in on Eric Nelson talking about the the ISU card study on multi-plant coordination. I, I came across an article, uh, it emailed to me from Drover's Journal and it was by an economist named Bob Mackey and I'm not attacking him by any means, but I guess the reason I point this out is because there's just no disputing in this industry anymore, not just that the packer gets to see more, gets to see 70 to 80% of the cattle feeders cards on a week to week basis, they're playing with more cards in the deck than we are, okay? Mackey said, and I quote, packers continue to haul cheaper inventory to regions grinding higher and peel back harvest to stall the market. Okay, that's not news to anybody, but is that does that illustrate a competitive market? At any rate, I'll get back to, to what you wanted to talk about, Karina. The Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921, what is it? It was passed to ensure fair competition and trade practices, safeguard farmers and ranchers, protect consumers, protect ag producers from unfair, deceptive, or unjustly discriminatory or monopolistic practices. That's ultimately the gist of the Packer Stockyards Act of 1921. A tiny bit of history. It's never been used. Just the fact that they were working on the PNS of 1921 while there was a DOJ and Federal Trade Commission investigation going on way back in the 1920s of the meat packers, just the threat of being prosecuted on that brought the meat packers to sign a consent decree and divest of anything besides meat packing. There was five packers killing 70% of the cattle back then. They thought that was a terrible, terrible thing, and I'm sure it was. But now look at us today, we've, we've gone back, we've deregulated, now we're at the four packers with roughly 85% kill. So now on to the letters. Um, I looked them up, or I actually, I printed them out and kind of read through them. Uh, this is the one from 16 attorney generals to Tom Vilsack uh, night in 2021, it was sent. Uh, this one actually dates back to 2010, 
sent to USDA and DOJ by 13 state attorney generals. And then another one that was sent in 2021 was the Round Smith letter that RCAF worked very hard on trying to get co-signers. I think we ended up with uh, 28 bipartisan members of Congress. And I guess what I would say is every one of these letters from 2010 to 2021 start with the story of harm to producers and they end with a story of harm to consumers. And you know, with that being the threshold of antitrust, harm to consumers with the Chicago School of Economics, we're there. So I guess the question is, is how do we get them to move? Uh, we've just begun an effort to maybe reflash these forward and to uh, try to get some accountability. We know that we live in a news cycle where we might be on issue C and you get up in the morning and you're on issue X by the end of the day, okay? So maybe by reflashing these letters and showing the long-term trajectory, just how long we've been fighting these same issues, maybe we can get something done in this current environment. We've got a free uh, Federal Trade Commission that seems more inclined to listen to antitrust. We have more and more senators and House members on either side of the aisle that will look at antitrust. So I guess we're, we're hopeful that if we continue to make the case, we would, we would like this industry to be a graphic illustration of what concentrated power can do to an industry. Thank you. Okay, another action that we we have seen um, since we came out with the cattle industry long range plan and Bill, maybe you can help us with this one. The USDA issued a proposed rule, inclusive competition and market integrity under the Packers and Stockyards Act and RCAF submitted comments on that rulemaking. Can you talk to us about the work RCAF has done with USDA directly to um, you know, bring more voice to this market concentration and power issue? So the, uh, the, the rulemakings that are going on are an extension of the rulemakings that started in 2010, the same time the attorneys general um, sent that multiple signed letter. And, you know, at the time we had uh, a, a broken marketplace, we had a dysfunctional marketplace, and it has only worsened since then in 2015 is when uh, the consumers uh, were really identified as being harmed by the marketplace because we had skyrocketing retail beef prices at the same time that wholesale, or excuse me, that the live cattle prices were on the decline. And that went on for eight years. And so that has uh, captured the attention of academics uh, trying to figure out how in the world in an industry that's supposed to be competitive can you have a complete disconnect between the price of live cattle and the price of beef? And so one of the uh, uh, provisions or elements within our long range plan was to encourage uh, the rule writing for the Packers and Stockyards Act so that those prohibitions that Brett mentioned, the uh, prohibition against unfair, deceptive and unjustly discriminatory acts or practices and um, prohibition against formation of a monopoly and the granting of undue or unreasonable preferences. Those have never been defined. And so USDA has embarked upon the process of beginning to define and clarify what those prohibitions really mean in the real world. And that's in the year 2023. So the Packers and Stockyards Act is over hundred years old as Brad indicated, it has not been properly enforced or administered. 
and only now do we have the rulemaking process. So USDA started in phases. Uh, the first rules that they, they issued actually affected the poultry industry, the highly concentrated and contract grower poultry industry rather than the cattle industry. Now, the second rule, the one that you identified, uh, addresses some of the prohibitions that do affect cattle, but they're still primarily dealing with contractual arrangements like production contracts that they have in the poultry industry and in the hog industry. And so what they're doing is gearing up uh, for the big issues. Uh, we expect that the next rulemaking that is uh, going to be out sometime this year is going to clarify and define what is meant by its uh, pro uh, the prohibition against undue uh, preferences, unfair treatment to cattle producers. And what we hope to accomplish is a, a, a bright line, one that the packers can realize what constitutes a violation and producers the same. And when there is knowledge of what the rules are and a clear demarcation of when the rule is broken, uh, you're likely to have less conflict. You're likely to have a more a smoother transition in the marketplace itself. And you're gonna have confidence in the market that we don't have today. Uh, because of all the uncertainty surrounding the advent or the introduction of these novel uh, cattle procurement practices that uh, the studies that Eric mentioned are now uh, analyzing and evaluating and determining that it is the, the instruments themselves, the actual procurement practices that uh, are capable of causing harm to cattle producers and, uh, and to consumers. So the industry has a long ways to go. The rulemaking process is extremely important. And we're working uh, with USDA in parallel with working with Congress, because of course USDA can write rules and rules can be changed. And a more permanent solution would be a statutory change that could be done in the 2023 Farm Bill. Hence the movement from our long range plan to the Farm Bill platform is we've identified uh, what we believe to be some of the most significant reforms that are absolutely critical to, uh, to provide a, a viable competitive industry for both aspiring cattle producers as well as current cattle producers. And so, um, so that's the rulemaking process. It's a, a deliberative process in which the agency is attempting to interpret what Congress meant when it passed uh, those prohibitions in the Packers and Stockyards Act and then actually writing the, the details out so that uh, it's clear what those prohibitions meant. You know, that kind of brings me to um, another issue that we have worked really hard on, and that is differentiating for producers and consumers, the difference between this rulemaking process by USDA and actually having Congress pass law. And there's no other issue where we have, you know, set those two in comparison than on the labeling issue. And I think that we have worked really hard since our cattle industry long range plan came out to really educate everyone about the difference between what the USDA can do and what we need Congress to do to really make a difference in the labeling issue. Brett, do you want to talk about the difference between what USDA could do with truth in labeling versus what we have to have to have mandatory country of origin labeling? Yeah, you know, the, uh, the, the truth in labeling push is a voluntary label 
that's put out that if you voluntarily label something product to the USA, it needs to be born, raised, and harvested in the United States of America, okay? But what we're trying to compel is MCOOL, mandatory country of origin labeling, which would force the truth, okay? It would, it would deny the opportunity for a lie of omission, okay? If I come running in your house and say, Karina, somebody backed into your car, oh crap, and I take off, and then next week you see your car's paint color on my grill guard, you realize that I committed a lie of omission, right? That's the difference. We want to compel the truth so that the consumer can make that choice. Uh, you know, one of the major overlooked slides of Bill Bullard's, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I just have a stubborn brain. I have to know where things originate. Why USDA facilitates imports. This is from a 2020 uh, 2012 USDA regulatory impact and analysis and initial regulatory flexibility analysis. It's two sentences. The first one's short, second one's long. Imports of a, this is according to USDA, imports of a commodity generally serve to increase net social welfare. Imports will help consumers. That's the way I read that. Second sentence, my wife would say it's a run-on sentence. She's a school teacher. I didn't write it. We'll take it in pieces. To the extent that consumer choice, <clears throat> consumer choice, you see that? They put it right in their own statement. To the extent that consumer choice is broadened and the increased supply of the imported commodity leads to a price decline, gains in consumer surplus will outweigh losses in domestic producer surplus. That's saying that as long as the consumer benefits through choice and increased tonnage, that it will outweigh any harm to producers. So now let's fast forward. We have the smallest cow herd since 1962. It's worked perfectly, hasn't it? We're at a crossroads. Right now is when we decide if we're gonna go the way of the sheep and import all this meat, or if we're gonna have a domestic cattle producer supply chain to give food security to this nation. I mean, it just, that, that is about the most profound statement that you can come across. So yes, we have the American Beef Labeling Act, several co-sponsors, Republican and Democrat. Uh, the most common excuse we have is that the World Trade Organization's coming to get us. Well, the World Trade Organization is absolutely not the same organization it was in 2015. Uh, there's been studies written and MCOOL has been cited for misconduct of the appellate body. Uh, the only thing Trump, Obama, and Biden all agree on is that this appellate body is a runaway. Uh, you know, what it comes down to is, I guess, imports or us. If we're going to have the ability to rebuild this domestic cattle herd, then we have to have MCOOL. One other thing that I wanted to mention, I guess, there was some comments that I made on the, the mandatory traceability issue. And the premise of my comments for that issue is that we have over a long period of time and continuously decreased our import regulations for this meat coming into our country. You know. It's been said that uh, beef is beef, whether it's from Manitoba, Mazlan, or Mexico, whatever. Beef is beef. But I would say 
when, when you look at the facts, that, that's not true because starting in 1995, we dropped for form safety standards from at least equal to equivalent, okay? Define equivalent. It's like defining sustainable. There's no set definition. 1997, we prohibited imports from countries with pernicious diseases, but we dropped that prohibition to accept from regions within those countries with pernicious diseases. 1999, we quit requiring monthly inspections on processing plants and changed to periodic announced inspections. Now, how would these small meat processors that are getting the government grants like that, if they, instead of having to have continuous inspection, daily inspection, they could just have a periodic inspection once in a while and have it announced. Uh, in 2005, we relaxed our ban on beef and cattle imports from countries with mad cow disease. And more recently, and this is something that I was contacted about just today, we've begun allowing fresh beef imports from Brazil. It, it just, you know, which fresh beef is a live carrier of the foot and mouth disease virus, which is something that would decimate our industry if, if we don't put up a strong defense. So I guess the case for MCOOL, I think only gets stronger. Like I said in the beginning, there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. If we get MCOOL, it's not gonna destroy anybody within this industry. It's just gonna help allocate that consumer dollar to the producer. What'd they miss, Karina? No, I think that that's, that's all really excellent. And you kind of weaved in there the issue of the mandatory RFID and EID that we're now fighting back when when the board sat down to write the cattle industry long range plan in 2021 we kind of thought that that wolf you know was at least back in the tree line but now it's back at our door Eric Nelson talk to us about really the industry threat of the USDA imposing this burden on cattle producers that would require mandatory EID in um, cattle that moved interstate well, I, it's interesting to read, uh, to read the, the proposed rule, and it says that no segment of the industry should be treated differently than another. And, and it's, the rule is absolutely onerous to, uh, to the smaller producers. And, and in this part of the world, you know, everybody, you know, somebody's maybe put together a couple hundred cows, but they've maybe got them in 10 pastures. You know, that that's just normal around here. It's a pain, but that's what we have to do. And and for them to say that uh, that every segment is going to be treated equally is is uh, is really hogwash. And so, you know, so there are problems um, galore with this and not to mention the, the fact that these tags have to be EID tags, but they also have to have a, a, a legible number on. Which then, why, why then isn't a tag with just a number um, not all right, you know? And so it, it uh, I think we're 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 back again to the the power grab that was, uh, you know, we managed to push back pretty well. Um, whatever, I, I don't even remember when it was. Now, um, Bill or uh, Bill or Brett, what year um did they was it in 2017 when they pulled the horns in and let it let it lay or was it more recent than that regarding the rfid yeah it, it was 2013 that they issued the, the rule 
that provided producers with flexibility to choose among the various types of identification devices. And then 2019 is when the secretary tried to uh, unravel the rule and force mandatory RFID on, on the industry. Yeah, and so there, there are still so many unanswered questions from you know, our, our CAF's uh, attempt to find out where these EID um, instruments are manufactured, um, whether or not there would be any embedded uh, ability to, to, to pull information off of those and by whom. And so it, it um, yeah, it, it's, it's strewn with, pit, with pitfalls, but it, it's still gonna really hit the, uh, the smaller end of the industry that's already under significant pressure. You know, you kind of remind us that that is one of RCAF's most recent actions about, uh, you know, protecting our producers against this mandate is we wrote a letter to Secretary Vilsack specifically asking where these electronic chips are manufactured. And so, Bill, do you want to talk about the response that we got back from Secretary Vilsack? It was a, a non-response, and we specifically asked the question because it was pertinent to our ability to you know, make an argument within the comment period, and the secretary chose not to respond and left a message in the non-responsive letter, uh, left a number to call his office, so I called his office and no response from the office either. So we wrote the rules based on the assumption, and that's based on anecdotal information, that these chips are actually uh, manufactured in China which is, of course, is under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, and you know, becoming dependent on the Chinese Communist Party and China in particular is rather dangerous because all they would have to do is not provide tags and you could uh, essentially disrupt transportation of cattle in the United States because no one could lawfully transport cattle without having access to this foreign country's uh, chips. So, uh, that was an argument we've included in our comments, but the, the most egregious thing here is uh, the fact that the government has not made a case for the need for RFID and nevertheless has chosen to deprive independent cattle producers of their freedom and liberty to decide, you know, among the time proven and effective identification means that we've been using for decades, uh, which they could use and instead the government wishes to simply force a single technology upon the industry uh, without any valid science in support of their effort. And it only it, you know, represents little more than a wish on the part of the USDA to be able to, to force this upon the industry. So, um, so we push back hard. You know, the RFID issue is really one of our issues that we kind of cross collaborated between the executive branch and the judicial branch in our, our attempt to reform and fight for cattle producers. So Bill, why don't you talk to us about the legislative effort or the, excuse me, the litigative efforts that RCAF has embarked on since the cattle industry long range plan or give us an update where we are in those cases. Significant one, of course, would be um, our ongoing efforts, decades-long effort efforts to convince Congress that we needed to better enforce our antitrust laws that were not being enforced, and the Packers and Stockyards Act. And Congress showed very little willingness to engage in the issue. And so uh, we took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and filed a national antitrust class action lawsuit 
alleging that the big four Packers have violated uh, U.S. antitrust laws and the Packers and Stockyards Act, and we further allege that they did so to devalue the, the value of cattle at the same time inflating the price of beef to consumers. And since we filed that case, what we've seen now is that every segment of the beef supply chain has joined as a plaintiff in the case. We filed the original case on behalf of cattle feeders and uh, cattle futures traders. And after we filed, um, the others came out of the woodwork. And now we see the wholesalers, the indirect purchasers, the retailers, consumers have all joined in. And not only in the beef industry, but we see uh, a high level of uh, plaintiff numbers in the poultry and the hog industries as well. And so that has captured the attention of all levels of government, which is why we have an ongoing investigation by the US Department of Justice in conjunction with a number of state attorneys general uh, that are looking at the Packer conduct. And so the litigation on the antitrust um, issue, it, it plays a huge role in our ability to reform the cattle market. But we've also filed litigation in the RFID case. That was the only way we stopped USDA from its 2019 effort to mandate uh, RFID technology by January 1 of 2023. It was the lawsuit that forced the agency to withdraw that unlawful mandate. And then we filed lawsuits in the beef checkoff uh, program, alleging that it was unconstitutional for state beef councils to be spending the money of US cattle producers without the oversight of the federal government because the beef checkoff program is supposed to be government speech. And what, what occurred as a result of that case is significant reforms that the federal government took control over the messaging of the beef checkoff program and producers were given the uh, option to uh, opt out of paying the state beef council if they weren't uh, pleased with the accountability of the state beef council to redirect the funds back to the national level. And then a second case that stemmed from that issue is when the government attempted to correct the constitutional violation, and the violation was a violation of the First Amendment, where it's unlawful and unconstitutional for the government to compel cattle producers to fund the private speech of private entities. And that's what was occurring. The government attempted to correct that. And when they did so, they didn't follow their own rules. So we filed a second lawsuit alleging that they have failed to follow the, the public comment and rulemaking process uh, as they attempted to remedy their decades long constitutional violation. And so what we found is that uh, with an unresponsive uh, federal agency or unresponsive Congress, uh, we can use the third branch of government very effectively in order to um, meet the objectives and the policy goals of our members. You know, that's a great way to kind of wrap up our, our um, update on the cattle industry long range plan and the progress that we've made. But once again, Jaden has linked that into the, the comments. And so open that up and take a look at, you know, where we've, we've come and look at the original cattle industry long range plan, because we are not sidestepping from those goals that we are still pursuing aggressively. And so that leads us to where we are now. And it's farm bill season, you know, from coast to coast across the land. You know, one thing that it, listening to ag media 
definitely conservation, crop insurance, nutrition assistance seem to be getting the most media spotlight. RCAF has some very aggressive reforms that we're pursuing for the inclusion in the Farm Bill to create um, re reforms that will really return profitability to U.S. cattle producers. Again, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but Jaden will link our Farm Bill platform in the comments. So let's talk about some of those. Um, we have addressed definitely in our Farm Bill platform some ways that we can move more of that retail dollar back up the supply chain to cattle producers. Eric, do you want to help us unpack some of those reforms and what that would look like? Well, sure. Of course, you know, MCOOL um, is, you know, really at the top of the list. You know, we, re we really need to restore mandatory country of origin labeling. So we can do exactly what Brett talked about, so that the, the you know the right signals can be sent um, uh, from the, uh, the the you know store meat case managers um, to resupply with uh, U.S. you know U.S. product and not not imported product. And right now uh, there's there's confusion over that. So obviously you know that's really important. Um, you know anything that can bring leverage back. To those that are that are trying to sell and and get all they can for their slaughter cattle, you know, uh, we're calling for packer ownership of cattle for only seven days. Um, you know, we're calling for a, a ban on alternative marketing arrangements, any of them that don't have a fixed price, um, a fixed base price, and so that that's really important. You know, the the numbers that I had here, you know, last week seventy percent of the cattle slaughtered. Uh, in the U.S. last week were, were captive supply um, cattle of some kind, you know, and so, and only 13% were marketed uh, in, up in my area, but we, but we marketed them at almost 90% cash negotiated, and, and we were able to move the market and drag the market higher, um, and so it's really important that we can, we, we've, we've got to cut back on the number of captive supply cattle. Um, and then also, you know, we call for a ban on the top of the market schemes that are that are out there. And so, you know, those right there would address the market power. And, you know, if, if a feeder like Brett and I are making some money that, you know, on, on some pens of slaughter cattle, that money is going to get filtered back all the way, all the way back out to cow calf country. And that's that's what hasn't happened in the in in the last eight years. And that's really why we see these numbers at all time lows now it's yeah there's always been droughts they, they want to blame it on a drought but there's been droughts since the history of the uh, of of uh, the world right and so it, it's a lack of equity that's been put away that allows us to to get through tough times so so those are those are some um brett you got any others that uh um, well i want to ask you a question eric Right. Um, so we do know that there is is a bill introduced that's on the table, on the table, the Fisher Grassley, the compromise bill. As a cattle feeder, does that bill get you excited at all? Will that move the needle? Well, it, it's it's kind of ironic. Brett and I were talking about this earlier today, and we've talked about it over and over again. But you know, so you know, the compromise bill actually started out as Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley from Iowa's 5014 spot market protection bill, um, which would have mandated, you know, 50% cash negotiated um, plant by plant delivered in 14 days. 
And so the fact of the matter is that the, comp the compromise bill's maximum minimum is at the bottom, is, is where 5014 started. And, and that's where the compromise bill, so there's no overlap. And so you would think that in a compromise bill, if it's really a compromise, it, 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 there would have been some overlap, all right? And, and there, is, there isn't any. And so, um, and then on top of it, what really kills the compromise bill is it's gonna be regionally based. And for in Nebraska, for example, there's a packer in Nebraska that's, that's slaughtered, buying enough cattle cash negotiated to fulfill, uh, likely fulfill the rest of the region's um, minimum. And so then you end up with, with really with one buyer, um, a lion's share of the time. And, and that's what's killing us here in Iowa is one of our you know, major buyers is out of the market because they're highly, highly contracted. And, and it was that OIG study from back in 2019 that said every time you lose a buyer, you lose, you lose ground on price. And, and that's exactly what's going on the more uh, captive supply cattle that we have. Brett, do you want to weigh in on any of those comments? Well, I guess I, I would just say that I like to say, put the U.S. back in USDA. I've taken USDA to task a lot. Um, it's not that I want to eviscerate Tom Vilsack, right? There's 100,000 employees at USDA. They're, com they're compartmentalized, just like our federal government. I mean, it's a kind of a model of the federal government. It's uh, plausible deniability on steroids. But I would just say that right now the USDA is in charge of labeling. How's that treating you? The USDA is charge, in charge of these import regulations that I just spoke about. They're in charge of more things than I can think of right now on the spot. But it seems dangerous to me to put any more power in the hands of USDA. You know, Eric talked about the compromise bill. And this is a lesson. This is one of the hardest things I've learned since coming to RCAF. And I've learned a lot. But this one's a hard pill to swallow. You need guys like Cory Booker to sign on to your bills because you need Democrats and Republicans to pass law. And law is what instructs these letter agencies, right? So the way you work at that is you keep these bills short. Two pages. 5014 was two pages, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yeah. Short and sweet. There's no room to wiggle, no room to play. The compromise bill is over 20 pages and it has more caveats you know eric if i remember our conversation right we, we came upon the fact that the maximum minimum for iowa was 50 percent, and you're trading at something at 80 and you said wait a minute what's that maximum minimum well that's just where the confusion begins with the compromise bill i think it's well intentioned by a lot of people but we've got to step back and think about concentrated power. That's where so many of this country's problems emanate from, is from concentrated power that's beyond the reach of the people. If you don't like our elections, I get it. There's campaign money, but at least you have a chance to vote differently. If you're not happy with USDA, you don't even get that chance. So that's really all I have to add on the compromise bill. Um, as far as other things, 
just really briefly to mention, um, I would like to see, well, we would like to see, it's in our Farm Bill platform to require USDA to use born, raised, and harvested USA beef in all federal purchases. Um, and then another thing that was pretty near and dear to me would be to uh, beef up the contract library and transparency in general by requiring all cattle contracts to be filed with AMS in writing to allow for accurate reporting. And if that sounds like an infringement on your uh, personal information, you've never sold at a sale barn. You go to the sale barn, you know who's they are, you know how many head there are, you know what they weigh, you know their sex, and it's your job to figure out if they're any good and what to pay for them. And really that's what the cattle industry boils down to. So I guess that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Those are, you know, those are some really great highlights. And I guess I just want to um, emphasize something that Brett just said that in the RCAF Farm Bill platform, you're going to notice that our emphasis is on capturing, you know, the concentration. We don't talk really about increasing capacity like other groups are doing, because as we can see right now, capacity is not the issue. It is the market concentration that is the issue. Um, one of the final farm bill, uh, farm bill reforms that I want to talk about that is showing really strong momentum is for proper industry promotion of our domestic beef products. Who wants to talk about the Opportunities in Fairness and Farming Act? Sure, I'll I can talk. jump in on that. Or, go, go ahead, ahead Brett. Give me a breath. So <laughs> one of one of the big problems with the program is that it it only advertises a generic product, and the, the advertising emphasizes uh, that beef is beef regardless of where it's produced. So there, it doesn't distinguish between high quality domestic beef and lower quality domestic beef. It doesn't distinguish between beef that has been produced. Uh, and having certain characteristics uh, like non-hormone, like natural, for example, grass-fed. Those kind of characteristics are not being um, promoted through the beef checkoff program. As a result, the price of all beef is lower than what it would otherwise be if consumers realized that there was a quality difference in the attributes of the product itself. And so, um, so this has harmed all cattle producers and in particular is harmed those who have produced the higher quality beef products and beef products that contain uh, attributes that consumers would favor if only they knew about them. But the beef checkoff program doesn't even advertise them. So if we look at how the beef, pro beef checkoff program is working, uh, we have a, a disconnect between the goals of the program and the output that producers want. What they want is a proper uh, advertising promotion and research program. But we have a middleman in here uh, in the process that's you know, taking money from the contracts and, and using the money to help cross-subsidize administrative costs, for example, so it's inefficient. And so what the OFF Act would do would, would be to prohibit any lobbying organization, any agri agricultural advocacy group uh, from being a recipient of the checkoff dollars. So it would provide a more direct conduit between those who provide the service and the service that's being requested. And there would be a huge savings for the part of producers 
uh, to get a better product. In addition, it would increase transparency. It would require a referendum uh, so that an audits, excuse me, uh, so that the, the expenditures are, are known to all the producers who are forced to pay into the program. So this is a long-awaited reform proposal uh, designed to enhance the efficiency of a program that hasn't been touched for the past 30 plus three decades and longer. Uh, so it doesn't even meet today's uh, current environment and uh, the OFF Act will help us get there. That's an excellent um, snapshot of that bill. And like I said, it's got a lot of momentum and it's one that RCAP is working really hard on along with a coalition of other groups. In the meantime, let's just kind of wrap up with some final thoughts. Eric and Brett, do you have some final thoughts you want to share? Well, I'm going to jump in. I, I kind of wanted to add tack back on when, when Brett was talking about um, bringing fresh beef in from Brazil. And um, it, it's really surreal. I, I've traveled in Brazil and, and there are, you know, and Brazil is, um, is on, only maintains a negative um, uh, foot and mouth status because of vaccination. But there are a number of other countries in, on the continent down there that have problems. And, and there are areas there that people don't even know where the border is between countries. They do not. And where there are borders, they're porous. They're very porous. And, and, and that's available to anybody that, to find out that, that goes there. And so the, it's, it's, it's really hard to believe that, um, that USDA is moving that direction because um, it, it usually comes, moves in fresh meat. And it's how the last, the last time uh, we had that disease in the United States, that's how it got in. And so, um, yeah, we, we definitely need to get the U.S. back in USDA. And I'm guessing that none of that meat that comes from Brazil will ever have had a USDA mandatory EID tag in it to trace it back to its, its premise of origin, will it? I would guess not. So it appears that our biosecurity really starts at the border not within where we are FMD free in the US. Any other thoughts? No, Brett just, he, he made a great point. You know, we've got these new plants. We've got a couple, several new small plants located where we're at and they're, they're trying to get up and running. There's, there's one of them that is a, a young recent college graduate and his dad and, and they've been in, the, in, their family's been in the processing business for generations. And the fact that they have uh, a higher regulatory mountain uh, to climb every day than our partners that we import product from around the world, um, there's, that, that's a serious problem. I, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's not, a, that's anti-American. I mean, it, it, it really is. And, and again, points to the fact that we need to get U.S. back in the U.S. in USDA. Yeah. Uh, you know, Eric, Eric gave us a presentation of his trip to Brazil, and it was fascinating. And that wasn't so very long ago, but I do believe that's before China moved in with their Belt and Road Initiative. Correct. If you don't fear Brazil for more than foot and mouth disease, 
you're crazy. You know, and it, it, it makes me think of uh, Steve Stratford's comment. If you're bigger, stronger, faster, I go away. But, you know, personally, I'm tired of getting put to the back of the line. As an American citizen, as a cattle producer, as a veteran, I'm just so tired of it. I'm so very tired of it. I guess I'll, I'll leave it with this. How do you bankrupt a nation? You create a system where you have to subsidize producers, you have to subsidize consumers to consume, and you've got an entity in the middle sucking up all that money. Quit thinking about money like it's a, in a, it's a solid physical thing. It's a liquid. It moves. Money never stops. You give a rancher money, what does he do? He pays his note. The banker buys a vehicle, whatever. That's economic stimulus. You, you give a consumer credit on a SNAP card, they go buy food for their family, right? And that money continuously keeps moving. But that's what's crippling us now is badly, well, worse than, than the cost that these cattle are bringing. It's inflation. It's here. You know, my dad, he died in, he died in, what, in 2012. And, and, you know, he just, you talk and whatever. And he said, you know, I can see a day in this country where you'll have truckloads of dollars and they'll be worthless. You'll bed cattle with it. Well, if we're not careful, that's what we're going to have to do. And I think that that's the premise of what RCAF wants. There's money, there's value in a T-bone, right? And a percentage of that value should go to the retailer, a percentage should go to the processor, a percentage should go to the finisher, the backgrounder, the cow-calf man, and circulate through rural America. And what keeps that to get, what allocates that is a competitive market. And I think that all of America, I mean, I think there's more and more patriots rising up all across this country that are realizing Government can't have that much power. They don't know what to do with it. They, they run over each other. They step on each other's toes. The market, the market is what has to allocate that in my mind. And uh, I guess I just hope, like I said at the beginning, there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And we need your help. Honestly, we're small. It's David and Goliath all the way. So, uh, you know, if, if you want to, pitch in and do what needs done so that maybe these calves will be good next fall. Maybe these guys that are sticking their neck out, paying record prices for feeder cattle, uh, get a chance at a, at a rightful return, then we would love to have you come with us and let's go. But if not, if we're going to sit back and watch, if we can't get MCOOL, I think we're going right along the way of the sheep. They're just going to import it. And uh, they'll, they'll keep a few of us around as trophies. But if you don't get the invitation to the big dance, you're going to go away. So that's what I've got. Thank you. So, so as we wrap up this um, video, we thank everybody for taking the time to stick with us and learning more about what our CAF is doing and what our goals are going forward so that we can return profitability to the U.S. cattle producer. If the things we talked about tonight or the things that you read about in our cattle industry long range plan or our farm bill platform resonate with you. If those are reforms that you too desire, we would appreciate you joining us in the trenches. Jaden is going to link um, the membership link in the in the comment section, and we can only work stronger together. And I, I 
do believe that we are all better together. And I think that you'll be find that you're joining a group of like-minded producers that, um, you know, we don't want to back down and we've had too much ground taken away from us. Our backs are against the wall. And so this is the last stand and um, we want to fight for these reforms and we want you to fight right along with us. So with that, I thank everybody for joining us tonight. And Jaden will post the recording here. It'll be on our podcast platforms and our YouTube channel. And um, certainly reach out with us with questions or comments, and we'll try to get back to you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAP USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAP USA, visit our website, www.r-capusa.com.